Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. on Omicron, it doesn't seem to have much impact on the demand for oil. So that's a reason for oil to be higher. And I think the other thing that's going on is if the Russian Federation annexes the northern third of the Ukraine, where most of the population is Russian-speaking, more or less the way they annex Crimea, sanctions from the Eurozone and from the U.S. might include, might include, this isn't a prediction, but it might include the difficulties in settling oil sales for dollars. That's something that the U.S. could do. And it would cause chaos in the oil market because you have 10 million barrels a day and it wouldn't move. No one is going to be allowed to pick up tankers of oil without posting LCs. So you'd have to change the currencies. It'd be a mess. I don't know whether No one in the U.S. government has mentioned that being one of the sanctions, but it's certainly within the power of the U.S. Treasury to do, because the payment system around the world in dollars is more or less run by the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury. So I think that's part of this run-up in oil pricing. Natural gas pricing is benefiting from finally getting some cold weather, and it's cold all over, and that's going to do pretty well. The other thing that's happened with natural gas production is the cold weather has cut production by about three bees a day. It had gone from 90 to 94 in the late summer and fall with high prices, and it's now back around 91 or so. And that's just freeze-offs in the field everywhere where when it gets cold. And so that production will be back on when the weather warms up a bit. But gas is behaving well, oil is behaving well, the energy equities are behaving well. And I have a rhetorical question rhetorical question for us, and this kind of summarizes discussions we've had on interest rates. If the U.S. Treasury 10-year yield is 3.5% by the end of 22, which would be roughly double where it is now, what would that do to asset value? So I can't see any logic for trying to clear out of equity markets because that might happen. However, I think that you better be sure that you like what you own because it may trade lower and then it will take some nerve. I think a 20% decline in the indices, which are still within three or four points of their historic highs, is a real possibility. Now, what would cause that? No one is predicting 3.5% 10-year treasuries by the end of the year. I think... What would cause it would be the inflation that seems to be built in, continuing, so that the Federal Reserve, everyone keeps focusing on whether or not they have four increases or three increases or five increases this year, figuring that each quarter, for each meeting, the Fed will go up by 25 basis points. I think what would have more of an impact is if, say, by March, they're scheduling the tapering. In other words, they're not going to be buying any more securities as of March. So it's a pretty compressed reduction from buying $120 billion a month 
of U.S. Treasuries and mortgage securities down to zero in about five months or so. But if you put the Fed balance sheet in what they call runoff, which means that you wouldn't reinvest the maturities, the maturities apparently are pretty short. So if your average maturity in your $9 trillion of securities that the Fed holds is like five years, that means you'd come down at the rate of a trillion and a half or two trillion a year. And that would be money that would be pulled out of our capital markets. So during all this buildup of the balance sheet to try to make sure things didn't come apart because of COVID, to the extent that created way more liquidity than was needed, and we had asset price inflation, that liquidity at the rate of one and a half trillion or two trillion a year would be quite an impact on the system. You would think that the average stock would come down a significant way just because supply demand. In terms of prospects for inflation, the worrisome thing is that anyone connected to a business sees that in order to hold your workforce together, you've got to pay more. And in a couple of businesses that we own interest in or control in, more is like 10% or more. And in fact, in order to hold our workforce, people are trying to hire people away, offer more per day or per hour, per week or per month or what have you. But they also have signing bonuses. So oftentimes in order to hold the employee, you've got to pay the signing bonus that they'd otherwise receive and increase their pay. So that kind of built-in kind of labor shortage and people having to confront the labor shortage by paying more, that could be a difficult kind of inflation for this Fed to confront. And remember, their dual mandate is low unemployment and stable pricing. And if the unemployment is 3.5% or something like that, and there are more jobs available than there are unemployed people, and labor cost keeps inclining, it is a difficult situation. Now, how does a business prosper in a situation like that? You have to do more work with less people, which is productivity. So in reviewing what you own, ask yourself, with the same workforce, can they do more? And those are the businesses that will come through the best. You can't time these things. So to think, oh, my goodness, I'll sell half of all I own and I'll buy it back cheaper later, that just never works. But you should be very attentive to make sure the businesses that you own interest in are pretty well situated so they don't need to raise money and they don't have a great deal of their take the free cash flow after all CapEx and whatnot related to the debt plus equity at current price and make sure if it's a mature business, you're in the high single digits. If it's a growing business, that you at least have two or 3% of cash flow, but make absolutely sure that the balance sheet isn't going to require, the cash flow statement isn't require new financing so that if they have debt, they can continue to bring the debt down. If they don't have debt, they can finance, well, they can pay dividends and finance stock buybacks and whatnot. Those are the kinds of businesses you want to own, but not just stable businesses. You have to have businesses that can increase their productivity. In other words, have a group of employees do more is the key characteristic, and it plays in. I mean, if you want cash flow businesses, business generate more cash than they're using, it's hard to ignore the tech sector. 
And if you want businesses, they can do more with the same group of employees, also hard to ignore the tech sector. So the kinds of things that Mike's interested in and that we discuss during the second half of our 30 minutes every week are absolutely where you want to try to pay the most attention to what you own. And now that doesn't mean to say that a business that is kind of humdrum but benefits from being able to employ more technology. Uh, Mike has mentioned this, but case in point, Fastenal, which I've owned forever, has a couple thousand stores. They've benefited enormously from being able to track their customers' inventory. So whether it's cloud computing or more sophisticated software, artificial intelligence, whatnot. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a tech company, but it has to be a company that can improve its productivity and get more out of each employee. And Fastenal being a case in point of someone who does that. And with that, over to Mike. He and I were talking about Taiwan Semiconductor. I mean, one of the ways you improve productivity is by spending a lot of money. And no one in tech that I'm aware of is spending more capital than, than Taiwan Semiconductor. So with that, over to you, Mike. Sure. So I think the thing I just want to reiterate that you kind of already said is just our focus is still on trying to find high quality companies what's happening in the market and how much farther stocks could fall or whatever are less important over the longer term. And it's more important that we try to find the good companies. I do think what's happening in semiconductors is really exciting right now. It is a big shift in power away from Intel, for example, and to Taiwan Semiconductor. Part of the reason that number is so big, the 44 billion, is that they now have Intel as a major customer on the three nanometer node, and they're gonna develop completely separate manufacturing facility for the Intel products. So when Taiwan Semiconductor's business model innovation is really important to enabling their position in the market today. And it happened a long time ago when they came up with this model of just being a fab and not doing the design. Fastenal, in a way, is quite similar in that they had a business model innovation and they applied some existing technology to it. So when we look at tech companies in general, I try to look at, is this just a technological innovation? And if so, I'm a little less interested unless it's the application of technology to a new business model that hasn't been done before, because think of it as a greenfield type of space and Fastenal and Taiwan Semiconductor in both cases are perfect examples of defining a new business model with newer but not revolutionary technologies that have worked out very well over the long term. And I keep thundering when Mike and I talk that software of a service, whether it's Salesforce or Snowflake or really have to focus on generating cash flow, that advertising and sales development, research and whatnot, a really successful business gets to a point where after you include all those costs, you have free cash flow. And there's an enormous amount of enthusiasm from customers for Salesforce. I mean, I would say our businesses are more likely to use Salesforce software applications than any other name, more than Oracle, more than SAP. And if you look at Snowflake, they already have half of all larger companies in our economy spending significant amounts of money on Snowflake. Mike can be more confident in discussing it, but with everyone moving from their own servers 
to using Amazon servers or Microsoft servers or Google servers or Oracle servers, the IT department of a large business, an airline or Walmart or a government agency like the CIA or whatnot, wants to have software that will work on any cloud where they don't get in a position where they're getting the cloud capacity from Amazon or Microsoft and also dependent on their software. And that, that might, might could be uh, much more nuanced than informed on that, but I think that's the logic of Snowflake. It's just, when you look at Snowflake, they continue to spend a lot on R&D and a lot on kind of development of their business. Just don't own the stock. I'd be much more interested in the stock if there started to be some cash flow at the end of the column after paying for all those costs. But with that, over to Mike. So let's make sure that we track Snowflake's next earnings call, because I think that they are actually on that cusp of running a cash flow break even. They've made it pretty clear that that's their intention. They've also made it very clear that they're going to invest every available dollar in sales so long as the opportunities are in front of them. So I wouldn't expect it to have a large free cash flow margin, but I would expect that we are going to be pretty consistently in that range coming this year. When it comes to SaaS solutions like Salesforce and Snowflake, it's not entirely true that the companies are only looking at not wanting to be dependent on Amazon and Microsoft. And that's part of the picture. Part of it's also that these companies produce products that are just better than what other options are out there. You alluded to larger or traditional companies with large IT departments. Those companies can't recruit the best software engineering talent out there. Your Stanford University software engineer graduate is not going to go work for Delta Airlines in the IT department to write custom one-off code. That person's going to go to either a big tech company or an emerging startup or a snowflake or somewhere like that where they can write cutting edge code that gets applied to a bunch of different industries. And it's just, it's simply a maturation of the technology sector in a lot of ways. Most companies should not be developing their own custom software from the ground up. Running your company on a platform like Salesforce does lock you into Salesforce, no question about that. But the trade-off is Salesforce maintains the code base. You're outsourcing a big chunk of your IT spend by adopting Salesforce. And Salesforce has been public for a while. They've been able to consistently grow revenues over their very long term, and they continue to acquire new customers, like Hunt said. So I think there's going to be a continued shakeout here in the SaaS sector. We've been talking about SaaS valuations for the last six months or so. And they've come down as a median over that period from pandemic highs. The median multiple for assassins was around 14 or 15 or somewhere around there. We're down to below 10 today. I'm going to answer a question, maybe a rhetorical question on if the U.S. 10-year reached 3.5%, what would happen to SaaS company, the SaaS median multiple? I think that comes down to closer to 10. So it could have a 20-ish percent drop from where it is today. I think that there'll be sort of a shakeout in the companies too. I think we'll see that the high quality companies won't get beat up as much. The high growth companies, the ones that are maintaining high levels of growth like Snowflake will do a little better. And I think the ones that are cash burning and are going to have to raise additional capital are going to have much, much, much more trouble. Now, one of the interesting things about all the companies the software companies that have specific industry niches and the security companies like Sentinel, for example, that Mike has led us through, 
when you look at the 10Q or latest balance sheet, they all have done a smart thing. They have in the equity raise before they went public or in the public raise, they all have pretty substantial cash positions. I mean, it's not unusual for these companies to have a billion dollars of cash or several hundred million dollars of cash. So what that allows them to do during a period when the capital markets may not be really functioning in terms of providing equity capital, they do have a cash base that they can continue to work their R&D and sales development expense without slowing down and losing ground to a competitor. So certainly the entrepreneurs that run these companies have learned that lesson, which is terrific. I'd just like to circle back to a couple of energy technology things where, of course, we get into electric cars and other things that will affect the energy business going forward. There's a good article in the Times this morning about Amazon and other people who deliver packages, FedEx and UPS and whatnot, wanting to move to battery-powered vans. And, uh, of course, Riviana, which has come public, had a big investment from Amazon. And apparently what Amazon was really interested in is making money on the investment, but also having Riviana put a high priority on these delivery vans that were battery-powered. And, of course, the article didn't say, but I'm sure the guy who's running Riviana is thinking, if I make pickup trucks that will appeal to people like, well, like Mike and, and Kellen, who have a hold on one of them, I get one margin. If I deliver a bunch of vans to Amazon, I get another margin. So I don't know whether Amazon is going to see those vans anytime soon. The largest suppliers of vans are the car companies. I mean, Ford and Dodge and GM and whatnot. And they, of course, are gasoline or diesel powered. And one of the things to keep in mind, and this impacts, Omicron may not have much of an impact on oil demand this year or next year or whatnot, but sooner or later, there is going to be a lot more battery-powered vans which are delivering within a 100-mile radius. I mean, they're absolutely ideal for using batteries because you bring them back in for a few hours in the evening or through the night and plug them in, and then they go out the next day. One of the interesting things, if you're Amazon or UPS or Frito-Lay or whomever who's running these vans, you're very plugged in to the warranty, and the vans typically are warranted for five years. And so if something goes wrong with them, you just get them fixed under the warranty. The people who are going to provide these vans, especially the big U.S. car manufacturers, are going to go to seven- or eight-year warranties with batteries because there's less that can go wrong with an electric motor. Now, a good question is, what about the warranty on the battery? You have Chevy, which has, I think, 200,000 volts out there, and LG Chem made the batteries, and they had to put out provision that said, don't let them discharge too much, don't charge them more than 80%, or you may have a fire. That recall is costing Chevy $2 billion and they're trying to get LG Chem, who made the batteries, to pick up part or all of that $2 billion. But I think there's enough confidence in the batteries charging you, discharging, and not starting fires. But there's enough confidence in the batteries and whatnot, so there'll be a longer warranty. With that longer warranty, 
the changeover as it affects oil demand from delivery vans that are powered with diesel or gasoline over to battery is going to be significant. We can speculate on how quickly individual households like us all will get an electric car, whether you get an electric car and keep your gas car. So if you got anything where you're concerned about range, you use the gas car. We can speculate about that, but the people who are into how much is this vehicle going to cost me per day or per month or per year, they're definitely going to go over to battery powered. And it isn't just wanting to be able to say that they're not emitting any CO2, which they'll all make claims on. It is dollars and cents, I believe. And speaking in focusing on this, a little concerned about oil demand five or six years from now, because this won't just happen in the U.S. This will happen in China and Europe and all over the world. Second thing is that the demand, another number of batteries we're going to need, is just spectacular. So we talked about lithium and the difficulty with spongimine, lithium from rock, competing with those big salt deposits in South America, in Chile and Argentina and Bolivia and the other materials that go into battery manufacture or the difficulty, the challenge of making this many batteries. And of course, not having a situation like LG Chem where they put out 200,000 cars with batteries that all have to be replaced. I mean, it is a real challenge. Trying to find things to invest in in this area is something I think we'll continue to try to focus on. And it turns out, I think the best battery manufacturer is Chinese. Originally, Panasonic, all the early Tesla batteries were Panasonic, and that big plant in Nevada is really a Panasonic plant. Then LG Chem, which is the Korean equivalent, but now CATL, which is the Chinese equivalent, is just stolen a march on anyone. And generally, Mike and myself are not wild about investing in a company that's based in China for all kinds of reasons. But I think as this year progresses, especially with all the problems China's had with Tencent, Alibaba, and whatnot, you're kind of stacking risk by thinking about investing in a Chinese company. But I have to say, from an energy or technology as affects energy, if there is a company out there that you would own a company, even though it's headquartered and incorporated and whatnot in China, CATL is probably that company. And with that, I know Mike has spent some time looking at the company, but yeah, we're not ready. Mike's not ready to put his partnership in it. We're not ready to be as definitive about it as we'd be about NVIDIA or Taiwan Semiconductor or Snowflake or Salesforce, but certainly is a company that we will spend time on. And then we got a couple of minutes left. I've been monopolizing the airwaves here. Turn it over to Mike. No worries. I, I think that you can't look at the electric vehicle market and the battery market without being aware of CATL. So their business model is going to be very powerful in our ability to get this many batteries to market. So like you said, not ready to make a purchase in the company myself. We've talked about the challenges of being a U.S. domestic-based investor and making a move in China. It's a very different environment, but it's an area we have to become educated on, especially given this particular trend. I think BYD is another Chinese company that it 
pays to pay attention to. You could almost call them the Chinese Tesla. They've got some interesting battery technology that they've developed. So there's a lot of moving parts here. There's the lithium projects just outside San Diego, the Salton Sea. There's some big lithium projects that are supposedly going to be able to produce a large quantity of the world's supply of lithium. It's Berkshire Hathaway Energy Services as part of their group that's, that's involved with that and the geothermal energy creation going on there. So there's a lot of things happening. The delivery van piece that Hunt mentioned, remember delivery vans typically are doing the last mile deliveries. Aerodynamics don't matter as much. So batteries are a fantastic solution for that. Batteries aren't going to be a great solution for long haul trucking, but short haul last mile delivery in those delivery vans is huge. The Amazon order is significant through Rivian. I'd say that we're a little bit Yes, probably Rivian because my wife's been on the, the wait list for a Rivian truck since 2018, and we're expected to get it in July, June or July of this year. But that aside, I do think the electric vehicle market for a lot of families is going to make more sense to have at least one electric vehicle. And I guess all that is to say, this is a changing of the tides, right? This is a big long-term trend how it shakes out and affects a bunch of the different pieces of the market, especially energy, time will tell. So it's exciting. I think that this is all just fun stuff to keep tabs on and we'll continue to keep discussing this stuff, especially CATL. And I think Mike is right. BYD deserves maybe not equal mention, but it would be the second Chinese company. I guess what we wish for is that CATL and BYD were Korean or Taiwanese or whatnot, but those two companies are the ones who are leading the charge in battery technology and manufacturing. And what China has done is that most of the sponginine in the world is refined in China. All the cobalt produced in Congo goes to China. When the Biden administration talks about these green jobs, I mean, it's a little ridiculous because most of the equipment, whether it be solar panels or batteries or whatnot, is basically being sourced in China. China is having a difficult time. I mean, they didn't have much real growth in the last quarter. And I think the real growth was 4% in 21, or that's what they say it is. Everyone's always a little suspicious of their numbers. And you know, it's down from 7 or 8% in prior years. And they clearly have overbuilt their real estate and borrowed too much money against it. But look at their exports. I mean, their exports set a record. And you look at these trends, oh, it's liable, liable to continue. With that, everyone stay healthy, and we'll have more on CATL and BYD next Wednesday. Take care.
thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.